Welcome to Voices of Australia, a podcast where we explore different perspectives on how to build a cohesive society. The most recent Mapping Social Cohesion surveys tell us that economic concerns remain at the forefront of many Australians' minds. Unemployment and the rising cost of living are not distant worries, but real and present issues for many Australians. An increasingly uncertain global economic climate only compounds these worries, with 76% of respondents expressing significant concerns about a potential downturn. But perhaps even more distressing is the increasing financial stress borne by everyday Australians. An alarming 37% of people reported struggling to pay their bills in 2022, marking a significant rise from 31% the previous year. As if this weren't challenging enough, the Poverty and Inequality Report of 2023 lays bare a stark reality. Our nation, long hailed as the land of the fair go, is grappling with profound economic disparities. The data is as clear as it is unsettling. A startling one in eight people in our country live below the poverty line, while the top 20% of earners account for almost half of all income. These figures serve as a sombre reminder that despite our shared aspiration towards fairness, inequality persists in casting a long and deepening shadow over our society. In today's episode, we aim to explore the contours of this inequality, understand its far-reaching impacts, and discuss potential pathways towards a more economically inclusive future. To help us navigate these economic realities, we're joined today by Matt Grudnoff, a senior economist at the Australia Institute and a voice of authority on economic disparities and their societal impact. Before joining the Australia Institute, Matt honed his skills at the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Department of Climate Change. The creator of the Your Life Choices Retirement Affordability Index, Matt's extensive research covers a broad spectrum of issues from retirement incomes, taxation and housing affordability to energy economics and climate change. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. We're absolutely delighted to have you. Uh, come and share your thoughts and your knowledge, and uh, which is quite extensive. Uh, but I wondered if you might be able to start with just an overview of your recent research on inequality. Are there any particular findings that have kept you up at night? Yeah, look, what we did was is we wanted to look at who gains from economic growth. So we're always told economic growth is a great thing. It's a good thing. It'll make things better. But um, underneath that assumption is that if the economy is growing and we're, and we're becoming richer, then that economic growth is shared out to everybody, that everybody benefits from that economic growth. And we basically wanted to look at, well, who's getting the benefits of that economic growth? And we basically looked at it from the post-war period, from about 19 1950, all the way up until just before the pandemic, 2019. Um, And what we found was is back in the the 50s and 60s and 70s, real per capita economic growth, and I should probably break that down a bit. So real means we've taken out inflation. So the economy might be growing, but it could just be because the stuff we're uh, selling is uh, going for a higher price Mm -hmm. and all the economic growth is simply prices have gone up, which means you're not better off. And per capita is important because our economy might be growing, but it might be growing just because the population's getting bigger. So we, we took account of those. And so we looked at real per capita economic growth. So the kind of economic growth you would feel if you got like the, the kind of economic growth that's going to you. And what we found in the 50s, 60s and 70s was that about 10 percent 
of uh, that economic growth was going to the top 10%. And about 90% of the gains from that economic growth were going to the bottom 90%. So that's a very even distribution of economic growth. But then something kind of changed quite dramatically in the 80s. um, And about half of all of economic growth went to the top 10%. And then half went to the vast majority, the bottom 90%. And then if we look at just recently between the GFC in 2008, and just before the pandemic in 2019, so that sort of 10-year period, we found that a staggering 93% of economic growth went to the top 10% and only 7% went to the overwhelming majority of people, the bottom 90%. And so that's a real change from the 50s, 60s and 70s up to today. And we we just see from from the 80s onwards, we saw that the the gains from economic growth were increasingly going to just the top 10%. So, Matt, having seen this graph, this is quite a startling piece of of finding when you did all that analysis. What happened in the 80s and continued into the 90s that caused this sudden flip in in the way that um, that wealth was distributed yeah look that's a great question what happened was is we had a change in um in in the ideology that was governing um our, our political system if you like what happened was is we moved from um the idea of uh, a fair go for everybody and we moved to the idea that free markets are the best way to uh to, to distribute goods and services um, free, but not only that, but that governments were bad, that governments got in the way of the economy and the best thing governments could do was to get out um, and leave free markets to do their thing um, and grow and that growth would benefit everybody. But as our research shows, um, that growth didn't benefit everybody. It only benefited or overwhelmingly benefited just that top 10%. And, and frequently those that had enough assets to be able to take advantage of that whole market uh, Yes, approach. So it's it's a really interesting thing. The the gap between the wealthy and those that are struggling to pay bills is is a real growing concern. I mean, it's becoming more and more obvious for for everybody that that the ability to close that gap by those people that are the ones that are struggling the most yeah. is going to be virtually impossible. That they just can't. Once upon a time, they used to be able to see that. Yes, if I did work hard, I'd be able to move up a bit and get a more, bit more money and put those assets aside. You can see that in lots of people's approaches to housing, that they, they'd buy their own home and then they'd move on to the next thing. Whereas young people these days, there is this view that um, that w- isn't, will be completely impossible. Certainly with rental prices going up, they're re- struggling to even stay in housing. So I'm wondering, in, in your view, um, what are the factors that you think that have one contributed to this view, which clearly is um, a realisation, I think, but also what do you think, um, What what's the sort of th- thinking that you would encourage young people to have in order to deal with this situation? Is it a just resign myself, that's the way it's going to be? Or are there actually opportunities for um, for people starting out to, to progress? Yeah, look, so um, I think what's contributing to it is uh, the kind of services that government um, 
governments offer have really been eroded, particularly since the 80s. So if you think about health, education, social security, let's start with health. Um, back in sort of the 80s and 90s, most doctors bulk, bulk billed, but kind of from the mid-noughties um, till today, there was basically a freeze in how much um, doctors get paid if they bulk bill. Um, and what we see today is almost no doctors bulk bill simply because mm. they can't afford to do so. In education, we've seen a massive explosion, particularly at the federal level, of funding for private schools so that now if we look on a needs basis, private schools are massively overfunded um, and that's basically come at the expense of public schools. So it's not like education funding has dramatically decreased. It's just that now it goes to just, uh, 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 particularly at the federal level, to private schools and they've got most of the benefit from that increase in funding. And if we look at social security, something like uh, unemployment benefits, uh, job job seeker, um, as it's called in Australia, um, what we've seen is, is because it's been kind of linked to the CPI decades ago during the Howard era, um, we've seen that um, compared to the poverty line, um, it's utterly inadequate to the point now where even some somebody like the uh, Business Council of Australia, which is the, the lobby group for big businesses. I mean, these are the the the, the, uh, the the lobby group that, you know, has the big banks and the big supermarkets and Telstra and all those big businesses as clients. They're saying it's too low, not because they're necessarily worried about the unemployed, but because they're worried that they're getting paid so little that these unemployed people can't prepare themselves for job interviews and present properly. And um, these businesses are saying, oh, well, you know, I can't find workers. And in part, it's because there's this pool of unemployed that can't present properly. So, yeah. you know, there's kind of a, a degrading and that's basically just created more and more inequality um, as we've seen the a degrading of those government services over time. So there's absolutely nothing to cushion you. You've you've actually got to cover absolutely everything in order to, to right, progress. Yep. So we, we did see during, uh, which is to your point about JobKeeper, did see during, the, during COVID that a lot of people suddenly thought when they increased the amount of JobKeeper that was being paid out, people felt very well supported. And so this sense of positivity about their economic future actually went up considerably. It's now dropped back down again, of course, now that JobKeeper's disappeared. But you can see that influence of um, economic well-being as uh, really affecting social cohesion. And I wondered if you uh, wanted to just talk a little bit about that relationship between economic benefits and, um, and social cohesion. Yeah, absolutely. So um, during the pandemic, um, the uh, job seeker was basically doubled. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think it was in part because the, the, the Morrison government thought that, you know, we're going to see a massive increase in unemployment uh, and they didn't want to basically punish the unemployed um, during that time. Um, and and we saw for the, uh, uh, some research the Australia Institute did, we saw that um, that actually lifted all of those people on JobSeeker out of poverty. They actually mm -hmm. went above the poverty line for the first time in, in, in a very, very long time, I think since the 80s or 90s. Um, and we saw a massive um, uh, benefit from that. So, you know, we, there was a lot of qualitative data that the ABS collected that were talking about how people were buying shoes, were being able to send their kids to uh, excursions, were able to buy uniforms, um, were able to go to the dentist mm -hmm. for the first time, um, were able to, to buy fresh food um, all these kind of um, things that that a lot of us take for granted that are, you know are in nice jobs and, and doing well um, 
but suddenly all of these other people w- were lifted out of poverty. And of course, that has a a great impact on social cohesion. As I said at the beginning, there's kind of this compact that economic growth is good because we all share in it. Nothing destroys that compact more than when all of the economic growth just flows to a small group. Because ultimately, if the rest of us, if 90% of us are not getting any benefit from the economic growth, at some point you've got to go, well, the economy's not doing anything for me. Why should I care about the economy? and, you know, and that breaks down a society. The thought that this group is doing so well and I'm getting nothing from it, that's very destructive to society. Yeah, absolutely. This has impacts too for um, people's preparedness for retirement, uh, where you've got many people that have um, are in situations where it's a very physical work that they do. So retirement is something that they're going to have to do. <laughs> it's not like you can just continue to work simply because you need to work. Uh, so it, it becomes quite a complicated uh, dynamic, if you like, around being prepared for older generations and the fact that there are more of us getting older all the time and less young people there to support it. I'm, I'm curious, quite apart from the fact that I'd like to hear more about your views about retirement and readiness for retirement, but if if what if your findings and your research is so profound and it clearly is um, and it's very you know based on real uh, data about what's actually happening do you feel that that sort of the Australian government is is trying to modify or rectify some of these things um, that have caused that that distortion yeah I think they really are trying um, I think there's a couple of big barriers, okay? And the first one is, is there's been a build-up um, of this ideology that taxation is bad and the governments are bad um, and that the free market is good. Um, in fact, we had former uh, Prime Minister um, Tony Abbott say that no country ever taxed its way to prosperity. <laughs> and at the Australia Institute, we did some research where I looked at um, 180 countries across the world, so almost all of the countries I could get data for, and I looked at their tax-to-GDP ratio, how the, the, the level of tax compared to the size of their economy, and then all kinds of measures of well-being, all the way from just straight average income, you know, what's the average income in a particular country, um, through to uh, um, Human Development Index, which is an index of well-being the UN puts out, all the way through to happiness. There's a a Mm -hmm. survey on happiness that can look at how happy a country was. And no matter which um, um, measure of well-being you use, there was a positive correlation between higher rates of tax and well-being. So even if you looked at the most economic of well-being measures, just straight average income, Higher income countries were more likely to have higher tax to GDP ratios. That is, they were more likely to be higher tax than low income countries who, who had lower taxes. Yeah. Um, and now, correlation and causation aren't the same thing, but what it does show is that taxation is not a drag on the economy at all. Quite the reverse, higher tax countries tend to be higher income. And the reason is, is because higher tax countries spend a lot more on services. Their government provide better, higher quality services, including infrastructure, health, education, all the things that we take for advantage in Australia that that also are are currently being degraded. That's Um, the critical bit though, isn't it, Matt? You do have to have trust that your government if they are going to raise taxes, will use it for your benefit 
and and, yes. and that they, in actual fact, will um, will have a wise thought about exactly where to apply those dollars. It, it is very difficult, I think, sometimes for people to have that level of trust if they feel they've been let down in the past. That's exactly right. And that's the barrier the government currently faces is, you know, what they need to do is actually tax Australians more, particularly those that can afford it most, particularly the top 10% who are currently getting <laughs> all of the benefits of economic growth, right? They yeah. need to be taxed more in order to provide services for everybody else. And that will improve social cohesion. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I know you've got an interest in, in sort of this area of housing and housing is just one of the very hot topics at the present time. Do you have a view about what the impact is of this this lack of housing and lack of rental availability as well uh, on people's views about their own economic circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. So if you look at the wealth data across Australia, Australians on average, this is on average, um, their, their biggest asset is their house. Their second biggest asset is their superannuation. Um, the problem is, is it's becoming, it used to be that most people owned their own home eventually. Um, and that almost everybody, when they retired, owned their own home outright. So that they, you know, bought a home with a mortgage, paid that mortgage off and retired with that house Um fully paid off. But we're seeing more and more that uh, younger generations, because housing affordability has become, uh, house prices have become so high, that, that these younger generations are just not able to get into the market. And that has a, a profound, that's a profound problem because it creates more uncertainty for younger people. Um, they're not able to buy their own home and, and feel safe and secure and fin financially secure. Um, paying off and, and eventually owning their own home. Um, but it also creates an enormous amount of inequality um, because what we're seeing is, is the housing stock, which is a huge part of, of the total asset pool in Australia, is being increasingly concentrated into a smaller and smaller group. So again, I mean, this has profound implications for social cohesion and inequality. Mm -hmm. I imagine though it also has a gender distortion associated with it since you've got so many more women that are living longer um, and longer than men um, but also have less superannuation so um, yes. and and, uh, and uh, clearly making some decisions about their own marital circumstances as well so you've got single women who are older who are um, yeah. under supported overall um, and and so we, we are in a difficult situation if we don't start to plan for a different type of retirement that once upon a time we might have assumed was the case. Yeah, the, the age pension, the amount that um, is given is basically prefaced on the idea that you own your own home. Um, mm -hmm. And and so if you're still renting, you, you pay out a huge chunk, 30, 40, 50% of your uh, pension just on that one, one thing, housing, um, renting. Um, and um, if you do own your own home, of course, you don't have that expense. So, I mean, the biggest indicator of whether you'll be in poverty uh, in retirement is whether or not you own your own home. If you don't own your own home, you are far more likely to be in poverty. And there is absolutely a gendered aspect to that. Mm -hmm. uh, women are far more likely to be in poverty um, in retirement because they're far more likely uh, not to own their own home. Yeah. And not have superannuation. Yes, yeah, yeah and that, so. that added on to that, you're right, absolutely, that they'll have lower super balances. Yeah, no buffer. Um, I, just as a sort of a lateral approach to this, Matt, I was wondering, th there is uh, quite a bit of discussion at the moment about the changing voting patterns 
amongst mm-hmm. young people that once upon a time you were a you know a, a, a bolted on labor supporter or a bolted on liberal supporter but now young people seem to be making their decisions far more based on issues than they did before yeah. which i'm assuming then has a slightly different um, well, does have an impact on the uh, political parties themselves. If we were to think about what are the systemic changes that we really need to think about over the next five to ten years or so, um, what what do you think they should be given this changing approach of the constituency to voting? Yeah, so younger people are, are not becoming more conservative. Usually uh, the baby boomers, um, the silent generation before those, and even to an extent Generation X that came after the boomers, um, have all basically started started out voting left of centre and have gradually drifted right of centre um, uh, over time. And that's not happening with millennials at all. Uh, it's happening less so with Generation X. And and for the Zoomers, that the generation are... Um, for millennials, we've only got a small cohort of them actually voting, so we haven't got great data on them, but it also doesn't appear to be happening there. And I think there's three big issues. The first is absolutely housing affordability. Uh, Millennials just don't feel like they're getting the same breaks that their parents got, um, and so therefore they're not prepared to to, to, to vote conservative. What's really fascinating about housing is, is um, it was actually uh, Robert Menzies, the founder of the Liberal Party, who was huge on the idea of um, owning your own home. And his thought was, if you owned a slice of your neighbourhood, you were more likely to want to see that neighbourhood uh, th- uh, thrive and grow because you were a part of it and you owned a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so basically he introduced policies to rapidly increase home ownership and it did rapidly increase home ownership. And then basically the modern Liberal Party sees housing more as an investment good, something that you can grow your nest egg with, something that can help make you wealthy. Um, and so we've moved from this idea that housing is a is a utility good, if you like, something that creates um, security, something that you can raise a family um, in, um, to it's basically an investment good. Mm-hmm. And, and we have this whole group of people who are not invested in their in their uh, neighbourhood. So housing affordability is the first one. The second one is climate change. Um, Climate change, which has been largely rejected by right of centre parties, well, it is young people who are going to face the biggest impact of climate change. And so they're naturally the most worried about it. And so they're looking for parties that are are also worried about it and are prepared to actually take action on it. Mm -hmm. And the final thing is, is the growing sort of gig um, economy, insecure work, precarious work that we've seen. So we've seen a, a change from most people being in full-time secure employment to more and more people being casual, part-time, uh, gig, kind of sham contracting, all those things that basically take away security of employment. There's so many people now who don't know next week how many hours they're going to work because they won't know until their their roster is posted. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard, and that kind of feeds back into those things. So it's really hard to get a home loan, for example, if you don't know how many hours you're going to work. The bank is far less likely to borrow to you if if they don't know that. Um, And so younger people are basically very upset basically in those three areas and it's it's kind of the the left of center parties who seem to be more uh interested in solving those problems whereas the right of center parties kind of think well all of those things are a good thing you know insecure work means we have a more flexible workforce <laughs> yes. better for business 
you know, uh, investment goods in housing, that's a good thing that'll grow people's wealth. Uh, climate change, well, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, I think, m- largely why young people are rejecting those right of centre parties. So, so th- I mean, I think that's a, a fabulous uh, summary of the issues that are facing young people. But there is also an intergenerational component to wealth inequality, isn't there, Matt? That yes. That, that what happens now to these young people is going to have real ramifications for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. Young people, uh, I mean, effectively more and more the system is, is rigged to help uh, people who are older. Um, whether it's through taxation, whether it's um, through um, housing affordability, all of the kind of uh, rules are basically set against young people at the moment, more and more, more than, than they were in the past. I mean, if you go back to when the boomers were at university, education was free. Now we kind of we kind of introduced, um, I'm Generation X, we kind of introduced um, HEX, but it was still mm-hmm. pretty cheap. Um, I think I got through my it degree. Was. Um, with less than $10,000. Now, the average hex debt is like $25,000 and and it's only growing. So, we've kind of moved from um, uh, something that encouraged people at, at, you know, the university level to now where you have to, you you, you enter the workforce with a really large hex debt. Again, that makes it harder to buy your own home because um, you're starting out behind the eight ball. And, And these are people who have kind of been told, well, work hard in school, get a good education, then you'll get a good job, then you'll be financially secure. And they're kind of pulling those rungs out from under them. So these are people who are who are doing what they've been told to do and are finding, well, it's not working because the yeah. system is rigged against me. And their, their personal experiences are really reinforcing those narratives, aren't they? I mean, yes, the, the RBA seems to be doing things completely arbitrarily and mm-hmm. uh, with no real communication of what the logic might be to do the actions that they're doing. So it's... Uh, you can see how young people are just thinking, well, I might as well just give up. I don't know what to do. Uh, and the RBA is a great example of this. So they're, they're, they're in, so basically from an economic point of view, what they're doing is they're increasing interest rates in order to try and decrease people's spending power. All right. If people spend less, then businesses can't put up their prices as much because they can't sell as much stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're not able to increase those prices. But who are they hitting? Well, they're hitting people with mortgages, in particular, people with large mortgages. Who has the largest mortgages? The people who've just got into the market, yeah. younger people. There are 30% of the population that don't have a more who own their own home outright. Who are they? They're older oh, people. <laughs> yes. They their mortgages off. So these rising interest rates doesn't no. hurt them at all. Who does it hurt? Hurts the people with big mortgages. And of course, renters who the rents are going up because uh, the the interest rates are going up. So they're kind of landlords going, well, I'm going to put my my rent up again, Mm. more likely to be younger people. So it's another example of of this intergenerational disparity where we're even managing the macro economy by hurting younger people, but we're not hurting older people. Yeah. And of course, if these younger people can't build their assets in, in any substantial way, and pass on, their children are in a worse situation than uh, than the, those individuals that are here and young people now. So yeah, uh, we're not actually adding to the productivity or the success of, of Australia as a nation. So um, th- we, we've just recently heard, of course, that the, this particular budget has produced, and I think there's even more coming, a, a reasonable surplus. If, if it was you, Matt, and you were given this surplus, what do you think the government should do with it? 
Well, I think that the number one issue at the moment is housing um, and the housing problem kind of has two aspects to it. There's the aspect that everybody focuses on, more supply, and how can the government do that? Well, it can build more public housing. And some people might go, well, actually, you know, I've got a reasonable job. I can't afford a house, but I've got a reasonable job. I'm never going to qualify for public housing. Mm -hmm. Public housing isn't going to help me. But the reality is public housing actually helps everybody. Why does it do that? Well, because if you take the people at the bottom and you house them, they're not competing for all the rental properties that, you know, other young people are currently trying for. So rents won't rise as fast. Mm -hmm. And also the increase in housing Housing stock will slow or reverse the the massive increase in house prices. So there's less pressure um, on the housing market, which means um, younger people who are doing fairly well, but not well enough to get in the housing market, will actually be able to get into that housing market. So public housing is one side. The other side is, is paradoxically, we need to take away all of the tax concessions for investors to buy rental properties. And you might say, well, look, if there's such a shortage of rental properties, why would you want less rental properties? That sounds crazy. But the reality is the rental market and the home ownership market is one market. If you put a house up for sale, it could be bought for an investor or it could be bought for a home or occupier. They're the same thing. It could be used for either which means that if less people are investing in housing, what happens is the price doesn't go up as much, right? And if there are less people buying investment properties, it's not like those houses burn down and vanish, that they don't disappear. (laughs) They're actually sold to people who are currently renting and then become owner-occupiers. So if you introduced a policy to get rid of negative gearing or reduce negative gearing and get rid of the capital gains tax discount, you'll find that there are less rental properties, but that means that there'll be less renters because a heap of the renters will become homeowners. So that's another real aspect to stop that rapidly increasing house prices. We need to take that that kind of fire of those tax concessions that's feeding the the price increases. We need to take that away to slow those prices down. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I know you were originally a lecturer and it certainly comes across you're a tremendous communicator. And so, <laughs> and I really appreciate the way that you've described all of these things in a, such a logical and simple fashion. It's it's been incredibly important and valuable. I just want to finish by one on one sort of slightly off centre uh, question, which is that you've been described as um, somebody who teaches economics with a focus on helping people engage in public debate. How important is public debate? Oh, absolutely. It's really important, particularly economic debate. And, and the reason that that I got into economics and the reason I loved it so much was actually because I saw how economics is misused by people who aren't economists. Largely, the economic profession is, is tends to be silent about this sort of stuff, but they're not part of the misinformation. What you see all the time are people who have a particular agenda, particularly kind of free market agenda, using economic language basically to say, well, you have to do that. A a classic example of that is, is we need to do this thing that will coincidentally help rich people and hurt poor people. We need to do it to satisfy the markets, to to, to um, help the economy, almost as if the economy is some kind of vengeful, you know, ancient god that needs a sacrifice every now and then in order for the harvest to, to be good. Mm-hmm. Whereas the economy is actually all of us um, and the economy is not the master. The economy should be there to help us 
get stuff, right? Absolutely. The economy is there to serve us, not us to serve the economy. Um, and what we found even more recently over the last sort of um, 10 or 20 years is that we found that countries with lower rates of inequality, that is countries that share their wealth more evenly, share that income more evenly, grow faster than economies that are less equal, mm-hmm. um, that, that are more concentrated, um, that the benefits go to a smaller group. Um, so even if you weren't interested in social cohesion, even if you weren't interested in helping poor people, um, there is an absolute benefit from sharing the economic growth because then the economy will grow more rapidly and we will actually be all better off. Yeah. So the kind of economic growth that we've seen that's concentrated in that top 10% has also come at a time when we've actually seen the economy grow far more slowly. Since the GFC in Australia, economic growth has been really stagnant and certainly at a per capita level, it has been really, really bad. And part of the reason for that is, is we're becoming less equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our economy is slowing down. So, so one of the things that, one of the benefits of a more equal society is we actually have a faster growing economy. I think, well, I'm hoping that maybe we've tested this out for a few, for a decade or so, and, and now we're maybe at a tipping point. But I do think public debate, and we absolutely agree that public debate is vital to, to a strong social cohesion, a strong a socially cohesive society. But sometimes it's not an easy thing to foster. Have you got any thoughts about what are some of the tactical ways to actually be able to foster public debate around this, around inequality, so that everybody feels that they do have a voice in what the government is going to decide to do? Yeah, I think um, we need to uh, we need to, to to talk about the benefits that uh, government services um, can have for all Australians. So we need to celebrate the fact that um, we have a government that taxes and then provides these high quality services. Things like health, universal access to universal health produces not only better health outcomes for everybody, but it actually means that um, people spend less on health. And I'm talking about all of the economies. So a great example is that um, Australia spends about half as much as the US on health, and that's private plus public together. Mm-hmm. And yet we get better health health outcomes than the US. And the reason is because, and Australia's not special in this. If you look at New Zealand and Canada and the European countries, all the countries with, with uh, universal healthcare systems, they get the same result. Um, these privatised kind of uh, health systems produce uh, worse health outcomes um, at a, more, uh, a much larger cost. And this is an example of where sometimes the free market is the best person to provide the goods. I don't think that we should privatise all cafes, right? I think that the the private market does a pretty good job providing you with coffee every day. But things like health, there are some goods that simply the private sector is not the best way and we need to find those goods and have our governments deliver them, not because we're ideological about whether we want free markets or government, but simply because they're the best, most efficient way of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, I think um, this has been really eye-opening and a tremendous conversation to have and I really appreciate your time. So thank you very, very much for having been a part of it and hopefully we will have fostered a few people to go off and have a few public debates about these topics. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
well faced. So that was that was quite a, a session, wasn't it? Yeah. What what amazing points he had to make about the, the how urgent it is to resolve this economic inequality. And uh, and as I sort of said, do you think we're maybe at a bit of a tipping point that maybe yeah. the voices are getting louder about what needs to be done? I think so. I think uh, the most recent elections tell us that that the electorate is changing and they're, what they're actually focusing on, particularly as it comes to the core issues that might sway a vote, it has changed. It yeah. is about housing. It is about uh, inequality. It is about access to affordable health. You know, mm-hmm. these are things that, you know, maybe a generation ago weren't top of mind, but it seems like it's now becoming an election changer. So it's really interesting how he tied that to the the longevity of young people's vote voting history is starting to change in it Australia. It is changing, yeah, absolutely. Housing has always been a, something that's of great interest to you. Yeah. Are there, did he cover off certain things that really resonated with you from a housing perspective? I think so. I, a lot of what he said was absolutely on the money because yeah. a lot of people that I know are, you know, just getting into the market or trying to get into the market or trying to save up enough money. Yeah. And they're being hit with these incredible interest rates, like, you know, that are rising faster than normal. I think that they're at that end where they're the most exposed. Mm. So um, I think he he's absolutely right that the actual impacts that are coming from these RBA interest rates most recently are certainly from... Uh, being felt by young people. Yeah. So it was interesting. I didn't expect this conversation to be <laughs> so focused by young people. So I was uh, writing all notes the whole time <laughs> thinking, yeah, that's exactly it, right. It is really interesting, isn't it, though, that the change in um, mentality as a result of mm. the, the interest rates, the inflation, the whole um, economic circumstances of individuals and the sharing of wealth. Because once upon a time, as, as a young person, you would go to high school and you would graduate and then you would plan to go to university and maybe you might go to university, but either way, either before or after, you'd go off and travel around Europe and you'd have a good time and you'd sort of relax into being yeah. a young person in, yeah. in a way that you could. And then you felt comfortable that you could come back and get a job and then you could think about housing and yeah. and those other, you know, of having a family and those sorts of things. Mm. Whereas now it's something that's on the mind of teenagers. Yeah. Can I afford to spend any time being a young person? Yeah. I need to think about, well, how am I going to find some money? How am I going to get a career that's actually of interest, but one that is going to pay me enough to be able to buy a house eventually? I, I think that is something that I probably personally witnessed. Like um, when I was in school, I remember one of our friends had actually left school early and he left in year nine and went mm-hmm. straight to Brick Lane. So by the time he f- we had all finished school, <laughs> he had like quite a significant savings pool. Wow. And he was telling us that he wanted to invest in house- like in housing. And we did not know what he's talking <laughs> about. We're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but it's, cr- it's now incredibly like, you know, poignant on his end to know that, you know, that investment for him will probably, you know, yield a lot mm-hmm. sooner than me getting into it a lot yeah. later. And then so, also protect his children. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. It, but it, I don't I don't think that is the right way 
for a young person to have to think so early in their lives Absolutely. to think, you know, our society is getting perhaps more unequal or perhaps less fairer. Let me do whatever I need to do now to respond to it. So yeah. I think people are just responding to their economic conditions. Oh, absolutely. Another thing, Anthony, I, d- I don't know if you think what you think about this, but higher education, he did mention about school fees. Do you think that factors into these kinds of co- oh, discussions? Oh, ab- absolutely. I just, I, I mean, I was lucky enough to go when you didn't actually have to pay to go to university. You just Must paid nice. a certain, <laughs> certain fees. And, and, and I, I'm just so grateful for that. But also one of the things that it did was allow a vast, a much broader cross-section of society to be going to universities. So you had this incredible diversity of people that you came across, mm. whereas now with these sorts of fees, it becomes a very elite yeah. um, process that people can go through because yeah. it just weeds out everybody else that probably would like to participate in a university life, but actually their parents or themselves can't afford it. Yeah. And and I I just think it's wrong. Yeah. One, I think it's wrong that people have a debt yeah. when they leave university of the sort of scale, like $25,000, mm. but also that it's it has an interest rate associated with it. Yeah. So even if you manage to try and pay some of it off, it's going up every year, and yeah. I just think that's wrong too. So yeah. um, it, is, it is a really interesting dynamic, but fascinating conversation. Absolutely. He was a, a wonderful guest yeah so I'm absolutely really excited to see what the reception is going to be from the people who listen to us yeah keen to see uh what others think about this kind of debate i mean we're not saying one way or other which no. way a government <laughs> should respond but yeah very keen to hear what people's what people take away from this absolutely thanks Faisal. thanks for tuning in to the voices of australia podcast brought to you by the scanlon foundation research institute this podcast is produced by me Faisal farrah and with audio, visual, recording and editing by John Bigelow from Interactive Media Solutions. Research for each episode is provided by Agalos Makdujorjos and Matthew Skidmore. Original music is by Steve Klapsinos. Learn more about the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute and all its works by visiting the website www.scanlaninstitute.org.au.